Welcome to Behavioral Health in the New Normal, a podcast developed by Prestige Community Resources, aimed at bringing healing back to our community through knowledge, expert advice, and positive messaging. The show is a joint venture between the Department of Behavioral Health and Prestige Community Resources, funded by SAMHSA in response to the challenges currently impacting our communities. Hosted by Paul Wells Sr., who uses over 30 years of extensive clinical social work experience to conduct insightful interviews with experts and professionals on a wide range of topics that impact the Washington, D.C. community. From behavioral health crisis to education to financial hardship and anything in between, this show will provide information and insights that will surely make a difference in your life. Welcome to the Prestige Community Resources podcast series. We are excited and delighted and and motivated today because we have a very powerful guest with us, Dr. Masika Jordan. Welcome, Dr. Jordan, to the podcast today. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Yes, we're going to focus today on peer recovery support and certification and training and kind of what that looks like. Uh, Dr. Jordan, You come with uh, so much experience and expertise in this area. Uh, I know you're a graduate of Bowie State University. uh, I think a degree in psychology. You have a master's in counseling psych, a PhD in education, um, and you're a licensed clinical professional counselor and a certified peer recovery specialist. So can you tell us a little more about your your background and training and and, uh, how that relates to the peer recovery support program you offer? Sure. So the the doctorate of education I have is in counseling psych. So the entire time I was going to school, it took me about 12 years after high school, another 12 years. So imagine that, you know, you go K through 12, another 12 years to get the the PhD, but it was well worth it. I did not know what I was going to do because peer recovery was was happening in two states, but not in our states. And most people didn't know what the term or certification process was. What, what, what the industry was, but I knew I had a calling and a place and a purpose to help families that were like mine, um, that were struggling with substance use disorders and that were multi-generational substance use and substance misuse disorders. And I, um, I, I wanted to help. And so I figured the channel I would do that through would be through education and mental health. Um, and so I practiced in the field for a while as a clinician in various environments from school systems to um, in, in mental health institutions where individuals were, um, were, were placed, uh, not willingly, but mandated placements, um, worked with foster care systems, mm-hmm. did the whole nine yards and ended up at a place called Helping Up Mission in Baltimore. And it was a, it's a 500 bed all male facility. Um, and we were training we were working with people that were finishing the program and then they were coming back. And when they were coming back, they wanted to help. And so it was like, okay, well, what are we going to use them to do? They're, they're here. They have a story. They, they had some success in their recovery processes. How can we use them and capitalize on their experiences? There was no certification at that time. So I, I wrote curriculum. I wrote it. I said, I'm going to figure out how to coach them, how to train them. That's Eventually right. the state came and they said, well, we're about to roll this thing out. And it's called a certific- certified peer recovery specialist. Mm-hmm. And we want you to be, to, to do it. You've already been doing the work. So I decided to, I worked with curriculum specialists, 
um, outside of the place where I was at. I work with them. I work with professors because by that time I've been teaching in higher ed for over 10 years. I brought a, a think tank together, if you will. And also people that had lived experiences like myself, like my father, like my family. And we wrote a curriculum that, that exceeded state requirements. Um, we started in Maryland after Freddie Gray riots, but then thereafter the journey continued. Now today, Jordan Beer Recovery is, is approved in every U.S. state, um, whether it's through NADAC or ICNRC or either independent states. We're now actually expanding internationally um, mm -hmm. because there's there's a there's a need internationally for additional services um, for for people that are struggling with addictive disorders everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's outstanding and so impressive. So the concept is built uh, predicated on someone has gone through a recovery process themselves successfully, got a good outcome, and they're then trained to go back and provide support and services to the same profile or population from which they came or, or to help support same experience that they that they recovered from. Am I understanding that correctly? That is absolutely correct. And so before there was a certified peer recovery specialist, there was a bunch of like, um, so you would, they were using peers and medical models. So they would use type one diabetics to go help other type one diabetics. They would help, they would have people that recovered from various chronic illnesses and they would coach them, work with them and then help them with the other individuals that were newly diagnosed. That was a peer support model. Um, the peer support model for SUD, for substance use disorders is exactly what you said. And it's two prongs to it. So some states have only embraced if you yourself have used or misused a substance before. Um, but then some states, and it's, it just depends on where you are, they'll allow you to have indirect experience. So it's two categories, this direct experience and the indirect experience. The direct experience means that I struggled with substance misuse. It doesn't matter whether somebody clinically diagnosed you with, ha with having a substance use disorder. It's the fact that if you look at the, if you felt like you had a substance misuse, and I'll give you for this for a caveat. I never sat in anyone's chair um, but when I looked, and I didn't think that my experiences looked like my father's or any of his siblings. Um, and so when I, even when I was writing that curriculum, I was like, well, that's not me. I have indirect right. experience, meaning I had worked with individuals or I had family members, loved ones who had their own substance misuse. And then, you know, I walked with them through the journey. That would still qualify me to be a certified peer. But when I looked at my life, I said, well, you know what? My father, he drank alcohol every day for 30 years. He ended up dying. Um, and this is part of the reason why I built the curriculum as well. He ended up dying from his substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. um, and so I said, out of that, that's, that's my indirect experience. But when I looked at his story and I looked at my life, I said, well, yes. the apple doesn't, didn't fall too far from a tree. Because when I looked at my life, he did a lot of great stuff. So I, I won't just limit his life to his addictive disorder. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's a great person. Um, but when I looked at my life, I was in college and undergrad and having diabetic seizures because I was too drunk to figure out that I was having a seizure or too high off of marijuana to figure out that my blood sugar had dropped to 30. Um, and so that in itself, whether I sat in someone's chair or not, 
qualify me to have abused substances. Absolutely. And so then qualified direct and indirect. I'm only wanting to elaborate in that example because there may be people that hear this that don't think that they qualify because no one ever told them that they had a substance use disorder or, or abuse substances. But I would say sometimes when we really look at the, the narrative in our lives, there's places, if you ever binge drank substance misuse, if you ever got so drunk that you figured out that you thought, you know, when we say those prayers, please don't let me die tonight. I'm going to get that is a substance misuse. That's definitely an indicator. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely an indicator. And if you yourself never touched anything, but you walk through the journey in DC, if you walk through the journey of helping a loved one, a family member, somebody that you're close with, a spouse who had a substance misuse disorder, you can also qualify to be a certified peer. I, I, I thank you for the distinction. And let's talk more about the qualification because I, I would imagine and I want to hear all of the steps that a person would go through, uh, at, at beginning with when they present themselves to you as being interested in being a peer support group. Now, I would imagine that there's some level or indication of stability that has to precede the training process. How do you establish that the peer candidate is really healthy enough and uh, in recovery uh, successfully enough to be a peer support worker. How, how does that get eased out? So I'll, I'll go two routes to answer that question. I'll go with the board. The certification board requires that you have a two-year sobriety. So if you yourself use that, that you have to have two years of sobriety. But what I realized, um, and if anyone has ever worked with anyone that had a substance misuse disorder or abuse substances, time is one qualifier. But, but that doesn't mean that they're in a place where they're in a healthy place to go help somebody else because you could be setting them up for failure. You could be setting them 10 years backwards, right? So right. when I was working, when we first started out in Maryland, I was on this project, um, HSCRC, and the project was for us to train these peers that had, all of them had direct experience, meaning every single one of them used something, misused something versus the family qualification, right? Um, every single one of them, also the hospitals wanted them to have a very, they didn't want them just to be light users. They wanted people with really heavy backgrounds. Yeah. yeah, extensive misuse histories. And so I said, okay. Um, and so the two years was, was two years was what the state required for certification. However, when the employer started hiring them, um, so John Hopkins, Baby Medical Center, Maryland MedStar, all of those hospital systems started hiring these peers. They said, well, they met the qualification, but they're not ready. They, they met the educational requirements. They met what you have to be 18 or older with the high school diploma or GED. You have to finish an approved curriculum. JPR, Jordan Peer Recovery, is an approved okay. curriculum. Um, and you, in addition to that, you also have to have passed an exam. So right. that's, they can do all of that. And when they did all that, some of them still weren't ready. That's right. um, so we created an assessment. It's a proprietary assessment. It's been funded through HRSA projects, Department of Labor projects, um, and used widely in all of the New York bureaus through a project we work with with Friends of Recovery in New York. Mm -hmm. But what the assessment is, it's called the Recovery Specialist Employability Score. Okay. And proceed actually using it as well um, for the HRSA project that we're working in conjunction with Prestige. And that, that assessment, it produces a quantitative report and a qualitative report. So it measures someone's recovery score. What's, right. 
what is their chance as much as we can measure using some standardized instruments that we can measure that they may relapse um it not only that category but we're also looking at their recovery knowledge do, you, do they understand the competencies and core domains of what a peer recovery right. specialist That's is right. supposed to do also we also measure hope so samsha says that hope is the catalyst to recovery now traditionally people used to use the Beck hopelessness scale, but it wasn't something that was indeed culturally responsive. So there was a gap there. So we had to create an assessment that would measure like that, but was culturally responsive. Um, we created that as a part of the domain and it measures hope. Now, why is it important to measure hope? Because that's part of that person being ready. If that person doesn't have the right lenses to see the peers that they're going to work with, then that peer never that they're going to work with will never get the peer support they really should have. Um, and so we measure these domains and we also measure cultural sensitivity and cultural responsiveness. Are they culturally responsive? Because if they're not, they're not going to be anybody's peer. Um, it's a bunch of isms and I can go on and on and on and on for it, but we, we know what that means, right? So Absolutely. the culturally responsive piece, we measure that as well. Um, we also measure essential skills. So soft skills, what people traditionally call soft skills, we call essential skills. We measure those and there's an, a quantitative, and we also measure the person's personality. So somebody can have all of that stuff, just like when you take career assessments, like the John Holland type assessment, there may be somebody that would be great as an accountant and they're strong in their recovery and all those other areas, but they don't have personality that is going to be required to be a pair because they don't want to talk to people, right? Um, so we measure all of that and categorize that area for them. And then it produces a report and it tells that person, this is where you are today. If you still want to continue in this field, this is the type of training and support that you're going to need. And so it does that. And so part of, to go back to your question, part of seeing whether somebody is ready, yes, the two years sobriety for, for state level, um, I think NADAC actually requires three years of sobriety, but most states require two years. But in addition to the sobriety, it's not a requirement, but most of the funded projects that we've used, we've used the RESIS assessment yeah. to also measure readiness. Right. I think it's so so important to have the data and, and to do the research to kind of validate um, some of your procedures and assessment tools. You know, what is the difference between a certified addictions counselor in a peer recovery specialist. It sounds like they might share some lanes. Uh, I'm hearing uh, on some level that some of the requirements and expectations and training experiences are similar. Is there a difference between the two? There's a distinct difference between the two. So, and it, and it even, I'll, I'll share this as an example to kind of give some clarity. We train certified peers to practice role boundary. Now, as a person myself, I'm a licensed clinical professional counselor, but I'm also a certified peer. At no point in time should I ever work with a client with both of those hats on. I'm either one or the other. Oh, um, my God. Okay. One or the other. With an addiction counselor, you're either addiction counselor, and you may be qualified to be a peer, but you're either an addiction counselor or you're a peer. When you show up to work with a client, you can't wear both hats because it crosses over role boundary. Now, here's some of the, like, just as an example, there's some level of healthy disclosure that I do as a clinician. So whether I'm an addiction counselor or whether I'm at LCPC or licensed clinical social worker, right. there's a level, but it's a small level. Right. The, 
I, I shouldn't overshare in my experience. Absolutely. Only when, when you're very clear that it's going to have a significant impact, yeah. a positive outcome and move the person from point A to point B. Exactly. So self-disclosure has to be strategically used therapeutically with, with intent and purpose, right? Exactly. Exactly. Versus the peer, the peer is going to do a lot of sharing of their personal mm, experiences okay. in their, their walkway, in their path. They're not trained clinically. They right. don't speak clinical language. Even if they do, it's not because they're doing it as a peer. It's because they, they may have picked up on some of the knowledge and right. information from other settings. But a peer in itself is really me capitalizing on my own the, my own learned experiences and saying, I went through this either as a family member or as a loved one, or I went through this myself because I've went through the road of recovery. I'm going to take what I know from my own learned experiences, and then I'm going to help you through that path. That's not what a clinician does. A Absolutely. clinician bases their stuff on education and clinical skills and clinical knowledge and clinical skills and we and we help the client in that direction a peer is helping based on their lived experiences yeah, now yeah. they are trained in the education that it, that and i suggest any person that wants to work in a role of a peer that they get certified and they go through the educational requirements because you can have all of those shared experiences but the education is going to help you to figure out how to deliver that in the best way possible for that peer to have the right. best right so so i thank you for the distinction and i really appreciate um how you've illustrated that a licensed clinician what would would use disclosure on a very limited basis where peer support specialists, the value of that, their experience is actually what drives the relationship and the support. Exactly. And so there's a lot of disclosure. They're telling their story. They're sharing their journey. Uh, they're leading the person uh, in a, in a, in a pro-social uh, direction. Um, that, that doesn't make sense to me. Now in AA and NA, uh, one of the suggestions that's offered is to get a sponsor. You gotta get a sponsor, uh, someone who's knowledgeable about the 12-step program, who's obviously had their own recovery journey, has five years clean. I mean, there's some, there's some requirements there. The reference or relationship between a sponsor in A and NA in a peer specialist. There's a hierarchical relationship when it comes to a sponsor. And okay, the person yeah. that they're sponsoring, where in which the sponsor is the expert, and I'm I'm kind of in this level of not controlling your life, but right. I'm sponsoring, like right, Absolutely. like i your journey. Got it. Where is I'm seeing you eye to eye. I'm sitting. I'm seating. I'm sitting directly across from you versus me sitting above you. How does gender and culture play in terms of peer specialist assignment? So how do you match people? And, and what's the relevance of culture and gender? So I think um, part of the nature of that peer relationship is building that peer rapport. Now, that peer rapport should be built on delivering culturally responsive services. Mm -hmm. So I say that it kind of goes, up, I'm going to answer that question in a different way. 
can you work with somebody that's not your gender, not your sexual orientation, not your not your uh, your your religion? Not yes, if you can deliver culturally responsive services. Mm. Now, JPR Jordan Peer Recovery actually built um, a proprietary model. When we built, when I came into this educational space for peers, there was a bunch. There were a few other, maybe three major training companies throughout the United States that were doing training. But every room I showed up to, whether it was in New York and out, I think I went to Albany, New York for a conference. I had to present in, and then we had like this think tank there. I went I, wherever I would go. I, the one gripe that I would hear about that was the gap um, wasn't on the other stuff. It was on the cultural responsive stuff. People were saying, okay, we had great training and, and kudos to those training programs, but they were saying, we don't know how to relate to our peers. Yes. It kind of, with that question you just asked, we don't know how to relate to our peers. And so I, I, I had been teaching multicultural counseling for over a decade in higher ed. And there were some things, even in multicultural counseling that we teach people to be competent to, to practice multicultural competency. There's no such thing. So, and so, you know, I have to train my students, my master's level counseling yeah. students on that term, multicultural competency, as if they're ever going to be multiculturally, you're ever going to reach a place of competency with multiculturalism. That's not a such destination. Because to, to develop competency says that I've mastered something, but cultures shift every day. Cultures mm -hmm. are ever shifting. So how can you, how can you be competent on something that is always moving? Right, right. If it's moving you're always moving which means absolutely that culturally competent my goal is to be culturally responsive so when i teach higher ed i teach them the difference between the two i teach them en enough to pass their licensure exam but then i go above and beyond that and teach them to be culturally responsive i had been doing that for a while and so by the time this gap came to my ear i said well i got to figure out how to take that move it out of the, the clinical classroom and then package it in a way that the peer communities can benefit from. And so I consulted with um, peers. I consulted with uh, other people that have been teaching multicultural counseling at different universities. We got together, I even consulted with the faith community. Um, and we got together and built this, this proprietary model for building cultural responsiveness. And it's called JPR Acts. Now, JPR's X model was also something that Prestige is using in the Hearst project as well. They were partnering with Prestige. What it does is that it allows people, regardless of gender, race, all of those other differences, if I can figure out how to see life through your lenses, That's then right. it can bypass all of that and I can still work with you. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Now, can you tell me a little more about the gender specific assignments and, and how that works? Because let's keep it real. Let's 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 have some more uh, open discussion. There's a tendency for people to develop and form an attraction uh, to someone who, and I, you know, I, I'm thinking if I have a peer recovery specialist, they're looking good, they're smelling good, they're working, they're available, they're supportive, they're understanding, they're sensitive. Those are all the qualities I might want in my partner. I mean, let's keep it real. And so are you suggesting, and I appreciate the cultural sensitivity, but how do we balance the gender related issues that are uh, potentially there if you have, uh, for example, a female peer specialist and uh, a male person who's uh, receiving the service? I mean, I'll answer that question from the provider because the provider may end up with that attraction. It's inappropriate, but the provider may end up with that attraction. On the flip side, 
And then I'll answer it from the client's perspective. Provider perspective, I supervised, I have supervised teams of peers. Part of what my role was, and I've trained supervisors, um, we're we're approved to do um, supervision training in DC and in Maryland. And when we've trained supervisors, whether it was with the Department of Health um, and or wherever, part Mm -hmm. of what we them to do is to have this hybrid model where a clinical supervisor is only really supervising your clinical skills, overall performance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. With the peers, I need the supervisors. And what I had to learn how to do was to have a hybrid model where I'm partly involved in your life too, just to be, of, like, I'm partly involved. I want to know what your recovery journey looks like. Right. I want to know, are you practicing healthy relationships and healthy boundaries? Are you taking care of yourself? Are your needs being met? Are your recovery needs being met? Because if they're not, then you may end up with a gap that you think you can have filled by your clients or your peers, rather. And so that is my job as a supervisor to, to make sure and monitor. And, and that's through quality assurance. That's through observation. That's through coaching. That's through conversation. That's for me even building relationships with the people that I'm supervising where they feel comfortable enough to disclose information. Now, that's from the provider side. Okay. From the side. And, I, and I'll use a personal example. I used to, to when I was at Open Up Mission, I had 500 men at any given time in this building. Mm. I was the only, I was the first African-American and first woman ever hired at the organization and ever in leadership, period. So, so that was, it was enough of a, cl- a cultural shift when I mm. got in, it was a lot, um, but, I, but, but I changed it. I, that was my job to go in there and change it. And I, did. Right. I, built, I built robust systems that still stand today. Okay. Um, when I was there meeting with the client, sometimes I would hear people say inappropriate stuff, but the moment I heard it, I caught it because I figured if I can shift and make sure and reinforce, so I don't let little comments go past the moment I hear something, I address it because if I do not address it, either I take myself, I'm, I, I know, and this is not an, if I know that I can truly help you, then it is also my job to make sure that you understand what appropriate boundaries are. Because that can happen in any setting. If I say for peers that you're not allowed to work with another person because they're a different gender, then I'm also saying to to counselors, you should only counsel women. You should only counsel men. But we know that's not the best approach because sometimes people actually benefit from working with a different gender. Sometimes, just depends on their needs. But it's all managing appropriate boundaries and addressing it. Don't let stuff go past. If you hear something, stop it, address it. Don't be I stop it, address it, approach it, and, and challenge it, and then shift their paradigm while you're helping them. That's your job as a peer, as a clinician, as a helper. Yeah. Dr. Jordan, I would be remiss if we didn't uh, talk a little bit about this pandemic and the impact it's having on us personally and professionally. We only have a couple minutes left. Uh, I understand you're actually at home with your children, helping I- with remote learning and yeah. uh I know what that's that demand is like. You're you're actually the teacher uh, um, at home, um, but how has this pandemic impacted the training experience and learning experience for peer specialists? So I would say um, we haven't slowed down. We've had to increase the number of trainings and how we offer training. So where in which we were used to sending trainers in to settings, we would always we would send trainers all over the U.S. to go train. And that stopped. We weren't jumping on planes, but the training was still needed because while the the training couldn't slow down because in the midst of COVID, substance use disorders went up. 
suicide ideation and suicide attempts went up, mental health illnesses went up, depression went up, and the, the alcohol sales in liquor stores across the U.S., they were not experienced as well. It, mm. They went up. So that says something about the, the nature and the need of more peers to be trained. And so we've had to increase training, but we've had to embrace technologies to do it. So mm -hmm. instead of flying people all over the U.S., we have we still meet the same requirements, same classroom sizes, same amount of hours, all that stuff. But we have to do it online. We're doing it through um, through various platforms, through if it's a traditional class where it's face to face, we're doing it on Zoom or some equivalent platform. If not, um, if it's a hybrid course part of what we have is a learning management system where people can go on and do their training online just like you would at a college okay. we have for all of our courses so we've been able to offer both okay good good um give us some words of encouragement what 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 can we be hopeful and optimistic about uh, moving forward uh, actually going through this pandemic experience as it relates to training uh the best group of peer specialists we can. Is there any anything hopeful and optimistic you can share or comment on now? I can. I, I can say this, that when people go through crisis and when America and the world has gone through a crisis because of COVID-19, people always assume that the worst is going to be at the end of the, the, the tunnel. But I suggest the opposite. I think at the end of this we're going to come out better. I think at the end of this, um, it has forced acceleration inside of the peer recovery industry, inside of so more jobs, more opportunities, more employment opportunities, more measures, more standards are being put in place, more certification processes, more training expansions, more people interested in being trained as peers, more people wanting to get help because they've experienced you know, the increase of SUD and there's more people to meet them at the helping side more peers embracing technology and they've had to because there's been an immediate need for them to be trained that way and the shifting of the culture is going to accelerate how we do services and the quality of services i believe that's what is at the end of the tunnel i think in a crisis people either when they pivot um, and that's what the this space has had to have we've had to pivot because of the pivot i think is going to put us ahead of of time as we prepare to close, can you tell us a little bit more about the partnership you've developed with Prestige and what that entails? Yes, I would say, first of all, I love the partnership that I have with Prestige and, and, be, and working with, with Will and the whole team. Will Bunning is one of the most passionate people I know. Um, a lot of people that are in this space, and I'll just say what it is, there's a lot of people that are in behavioral health for a dollar. That's Thanks. not Will. Um, there's a lot of people that join this movement for a dollar that's not will um and it has never been me anytime i connect with people the first thing that i ask them even when we hire our team we ask what's your why what okay. is your why why are you here because if you're if your why is because you want to expand business go do something else right. you're not going to be here for the long haul we need people that are long haul runners will is a long haul runner you the moment you talk to him for 30 seconds you get his why um, and so moving into that why we we connected and we applied for this HRSA project together. Um, and this HRSA project is going to allow Prestige and Jordan Peer Recovery a partnership that will train peers over the next four years. Um, and we're not only going to train them, but with the traditional classroom training, but we're going to provide them with internship opportunities and moving and watching them and coaching them along the path to get certified and then helping to place them into industries that where there's gaps in this peer space and this peer movement. 
Dr. Jordan, I must comment that you, your enthusiasm, commitment, passion, actually is just seeping through this whole podcast. And I respect um, the experiences that led you to this point, both personally and professionally. You know, I say time and time again that um, people don't choose this work or chosen to do this work by divine right and privilege. And I definitely acknowledge your transparency in, in terms of you sharing a little bit about your story, which motivated you to get the training required to equip you uh, uh, to help other people uh, recover and be as healthy as they, they can. You're a tremendous asset to the community at large, uh, and we really appreciate your service. How can people reach you? I know your fault, and be careful now, because when you put your website and that you, it's gonna blow up. So how do people reach you? What's the best way to reach? It's a couple of ways. Um, one is the website, there's some contact forms there that go immediately to our team. And okay. that website is www.jordanpeerrecovery.com. The other way you can email info at jordanpeerrecovery.com. Okay. Info at and if there's a direct need to, um, like if there's an immediate need, immediate service, you can email mjordan at jordanpeerrecovery.com. Thank you, Dr. Jordan. I really appreciate it this time. You made my job as host very easy. You are the expert. It's so natural. I see you're walking in your, your, your rights and your privilege. Uh, and we thank you for being here. For the audience, if you want more information, about who Prestige is and what we do, please visit our website at prestigecommunityresources.org. We thank you all for joining us uh, today. And it has been a pleasure and honor. Until next time, stay safe, stay well. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>